You know, the word heart in English has a lot of different meanings. And one of the meanings concerns the area of effort and commitment and determination. For example, we might say that uh, a woman has a real heart for the Lord. And what we mean is she really loves the Lord Jesus Christ. She's really committed to serving Him and to pleasing Him. We might say that Kobe Bryant really has a heart for the game of basketball. He puts his heart into it when he plays. He's really committed to winning. He's going to do what it takes to win. Now, you may question uh, what's happened with Shaq, but as far as his personal commitment to playing, everybody knows he's got a real heart for the game, and he plays all out every game. We talk about people. I've, done, I've uh, started three marathons, finished two. And uh, we can say, and I saw lots of this happening, where people lose heart in a marathon. I mean, it's 26 and a quarter miles. And you'll find people lose heart and they drop out of the race. And it's because their desire, their commitment, wanes when the pain increases and when the aches and the difficulties come and they quit the race. Well, the same is true in the Bible. This word heart is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to our desires, to refer to our commitment. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves and the IRS break in and steal. That's in the new NIV. Um, But he says, lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. Remember how it ends? For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. In other words, whatever your treasure is, that's where your desires are. That's where your commitment is. That's what energizes you. And so if your ultimate aim in life, your ultimate desire in life, is to have a million or ten million or whatever, then that's where your heart is. That's what drives you. But if your aim in life is to please the Lord Jesus Christ and to one day hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant, and to rule with Him in the life to come and to have an abundant life in the life to come and to be a blessing to those around you now and forever, well then that's where your heart is. That's where your desires are. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning we see the same sort of the use of the word heart. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to read the passage now, and then we'll talk about it more in a minute. Luke chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18. Luke 8, 11 through 18. This is the parable of the four soils. And in Luke 8, 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts. Notice, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, or the idea is no depth of root who believe for a while or for a time, and in time of temptation, fall away. 
each of the soils gets better. The third soil. Now the ones that fell among the thorns or the weeds or whatever are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with three things. Cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good or noble ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And then there's a summary given after this, a little statement related to it. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on the lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear. That is, take heed how you hear the Word of God. For whoever has to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. And notice in verse 15, the good soil is the one that receives the Word, hears the Word with a noble and good heart. Their desire is to know and apply the Word of God. The title of my message today is, Put Your Heart Into It. One of the things we find in Scripture is that the Bible is not some sort of drudgery that we have to read the Bible every day so that we can somehow go through certain disciplines so that we can please our Sunday school teacher or please the leaders of the church or please our spouse or whatever. It's just some kind of drudgery. No, the Bible, according to the Bible, is actually our food. First of all, as this passage shows, we can't even have eternal life without receiving what the Bible says. Secondly, we cannot grow as a Christian. We cannot have abundance of life. We cannot have the joy and the peace and the patience and all the things God wants us to have without feeding on the Word of God. For example, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, you remember he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Uh, in Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Of course, mind renewal comes from the Word of God. If we want to see our behavior change for the better, if we want to have transformed lives, it's not a matter of determination and gutting it out. It's a matter of taking in the food we need. Just like a bodybuilder is not going to get the body that he or she wants without eating properly and exercising properly, so the Christian cannot have a transformed life without having his or her mind renewed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul said, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, this is the mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. How are we transformed? By seeing the glory of the Lord in His Word. One uh, friend of mine who's a pastor, he once said, most people as they read the Bible don't see the glory of the Lord when they read it because they don't have a proper understanding of the Word of God, starting with what we need to do to have eternal life. 
They think we've got to work our way to heaven. We've got to be good. We've got to do all these things. The word glory basically relates to beauty. When you read the Word of God, do you see the beauty of Jesus Christ? Because if you do, that has a transforming power on your life. Because we're made more and more like Christ the more we see Him as He is. And so the Word of God has a very powerful impact. And then the passage before us today presents this same idea. That the Word of God is vital for us. For example, look at verse 12. Those by the wayside are those who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now what we have here is a picture of someone who is sowing seed. And there are furrows and they're dropping the seed into the furrows. But there are paths that they walk on. And they walk on these paths so they can drop the seed in the furrows and then cover it over. Well, what happens is as they're sowing the seed, some of the seed they throw out in front of them is ending up on the path. It's not getting under the ground. It's setting on top of the ground. And what verse 11 tells us is, verse 12 says, the birds come and they eat the soil right off the wayside, right off the path. In fact, if you go back in the parable to verse 5 where he explain, where he, before he explains it when he tells it, he says the sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed some fell by the wayside of the path and it was trampled down in other words as he keeps walking sowing the seed, he tramples it down and then the birds come, it says the birds of the air devoured it but notice what it says in verse 6, some fell on rock, this means it's not directly on rock but what happened, the plows of that day didn't always get down real deep, and so as a result, you could have a rocky layer maybe four or five inches below the soil. And when you would come to a layer like that, the seed would germinate. It would spring up immediately, but because there was no depth for the root, the plant would ultimately wither and die. And so what happened is, verse 6 says, some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Notice the words, it sprang up. I've got that circled in my Bible because in verse 7 we read, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it. There's the same word again. Sprang up. Soil 2 sprang up. Soil 3 sprang up along with the weeds, the thorns. Soil 4, according to verse 8, but others fell on the good ground, sprang up, I've got that circled as well, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Soils 2 three and four sprang up. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school in Arcadia, California, we used to, some of our teachers had us plant little beans and things, you know, in a little styrofoam cup, and you'd watch them spring up, right? And it was kind of cool. You'd take an avocado seed, you know, and you'd put toothpicks in it and stick it in a jar, and, you know, you'd get all these roots going down, and it'd spring up. Well, if you're a pro-life person in terms of plants, then you believe plant life begins at germination. (laughs) Right? And by the time it springs up, everybody agrees plant life has already occurred, right? Because it's long since germinated by the time it breaks the soil and you see the green coming out. Are you with me? Well, soils 2, 3, and 4 all sprang up. Now, some people understand these four soils this way. Soil 4 is born-again people because it's the good soil. It's the one that brings fruit to maturity. 
And soils 1, 2, and 3 are different kinds of unbelievers, different types of people who have not been born again. That, however, flies in the face of the parable because soils 2, 3, and 4 all sprang up, sprang up, sprang up. You can't spring up unless you've germinated if you're a plant. Are you with me so far? So actually what the parable is telling us is about one type of unbeliever and three types of believers. Three types of people who sprang up. Now let's first look at the unbeliever. We're told in verse 12 that the seed, the word of God is sown, but the devil comes and takes the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. I take it this word saved here refers to them being born again, gaining eternal life. If you have your bulletin, look, you've got a nice little statement here. On the inside here, as you go around, there's a statement that says the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's after welcome to CBC, our purpose, and then the good news of Jesus Christ. And notice the part in italics at the bottom of it, John 6:47. This is Jesus speaking, and he said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I can illustrate John 8, I mean Luke 8:12 from this verse because it happened to me one time. I was preaching through the Gospel of John at my church in Dallas, a little small Hispanic church, and I came to this passage in John 6. And I preached this passage, and what I said was this. Notice what Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So what do we know of everyone who believes in Jesus? Well, they have everlasting life. What tense is it when it says has everlasting life? Is that past, present, or future? Present tense, right? It's not he who believes in me will get everlasting life if they hang in there till the end. He who believes in me will get everlasting life if they keep on believing until the end. He who believes in me will get everlasting life if they bear fruit with patience. No, the moment a person believes in Jesus, they've got everlasting life. So I said in the sermon, if you find somebody that believes in Jesus, you find somebody that is eternally secure. They have eternal life, and if later on they decided they wanted to go to hell, too bad. Because Jesus promises, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So there's no such thing as someone who believes in Jesus and who doesn't have everlasting life. Now, I've talked to people before, and I share this verse with them, and they'll say things like, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know if I have everlasting life. And I say, well, then you don't believe in Jesus, because the verse says, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So you don't believe what Jesus says here. Well, after I preach this message... The piano player, who was a young man from South America who was new to the States, um, he came up to me and he said, you know, what you said makes sense from that one verse, or even maybe some of the verses around it, like I commented on 635 to 40 and stuff. He says, that makes sense in light of that one verse. But the Bible's a big book, <laughs> and there's an awful lot in the Bible about obeying God. And we know from other verses that unless you obey God and live a faithful life until the end, you're going to hell. And so you know what I said to him? I said, so what Jesus said here was wrong. Right? He who believes in me doesn't have everlasting life unless the person keeps the commandments and lives a good life and proves worthy and works their way to heaven. 
And he's like, well, no, you just got to take the whole Bible into account. I always get a kick out of it when people are willing to ignore a very simple and clear passage of Scripture in order to go to some kind of, let's look at the whole Bible, and then they come up with their own doctrine. Well, what's happened here is exactly what verse 12 talks about. When I talked to that young man, Satan came, snatched the word out of his heart, lest he should believe and be saved. Now, hopefully, at some point later on, this young man did come to faith. I don't know. He didn't stay in the church. But the point is, unless a person believes the saving message, they don't get eternal life. It really doesn't matter how much we love God. Because the issue is not whether we love God or not. The issue is not how hard we work for God, how often we attend church, how much we pray, how much money we give. The issue is the Word of God. You see, the point of the parable of the four soils on the first soil is you don't even get the life unless you get the Word. And it's specifically the promise in the Word that the person who believes in Jesus has eternal life. And it's such a simple message, so many people stumble over it. Because, I mean, then I hear people say, well, if I believe that, why wouldn't I go out and live like the devil? Well, I'm glad when I hear that question, because at least they're understanding it's a free gift. (laughs) At least they're understanding it's just by faith in Jesus. But the truth is, there's a whole lot of reasons to live for God, but one of them is not so that I can stay saved or so that I can work my way to heaven. Because that's a free gift. And if I think that way, I'm not believing the saving message. So the first soil represents the unbeliever. And the problem with the unbeliever is the unbeliever does not believe even the saving message, let alone the things they need to grow. Soils 2, 3, and 4 now represent three people who believe the Word of God, who spring up, but they have different degrees of fruitfulness. And the reason they have different degrees of fruitfulness is because of how they respond to the Word of God. Just like the first soil does not receive the Word of God in terms of eternal life, soils 2, 3, and 4 have different responses to the Word of God in terms of their Christian growth. So soil 2, the response of soil 2, is that these people believe for a time, and in time of temptation, they fall away. I've often illustrated this by saying, what if a person believes in Jesus, and then they die in a car accident moments later? Well, they have eternal life, right? But lots of people would say if that same person survived the car accident and later became a drug addict and then died, now they go to hell. So they would have been better off dying in the car accident, you know. A lot of people's theology is the best thing that could happen to you is the moment you believe, then you die. (laughs) Because that way you're eternally secure, see. And that's their only way they think you can be sure you're going to make it, you know. Have somebody lead you to Christ, and then hold you under the water or something. <laughs> I baptize you permanently. <laughs> you know. No. No, that's not it. He who believes in me has everlasting life. Well, the second soil believes that, but then they fall away. A lot of people think, well, if they fall away, it proves they weren't born again in the first place. No, what it proves is they fell away. They sprang up. But they didn't have the depth they needed because they didn't continue to take in the Word of God. You know, there are people who come to faith in Christ and don't come to church. And they're not getting the nourishment they need for that life to prosper. And so as a result, they can fall away. 
And you know, we're not saved by eternal faith in the Savior. We're saved by faith in an eternally faithful Savior. The moment we believe in Him, He's faithful to His promise that He who believes in me has everlasting life. So what you see if you're involved in church work for very long is you find there are people you lead to faith in Christ who initially have excitement about the Christian faith, and at some point along the way, they drop out. They quit the race. They have eternal life, but they have stopped striving for the prize of ruling with Christ and hearing is well done. Some of these people, of course, come back, but many of them will stay that way until they die. And they may even look like an unbeliever in the way they live. But they have eternal life because they sprang up. They germinated. They believed and they got the eternal life. The third soil represents someone who's in advance to that, where they believe and they continue to believe their whole life. They, they don't fall away. But what happens is cares, riches, and the pleasures of life mess them up. Now, I don't know about you, but cares can sometimes mess me up, right, in my Christian life. Now, you may not think riches can mess you up, but, but they can mess you up. The more we have, the more dangerous it is for us as a Christian. I've had lots of people say, well, Lord, try me. <laughs> Let me win the lottery. But most of us would really be fouled up if someone dropped $10 million on us right now, or $100 million on us right now. It would probably ruin most of our lives. It would certainly be a real trial for us in terms of continuing our growth as a Christian and listening to the Word of God. Because money has a way of messing with us. That's not true of everyone, but it's just harder. Same thing with cares. And the pleasures of life. We think, well, why would the pleasures of life mess you up? Well, if you get too distracted by the pleasures of life, then you're not paying as much attention to the Word of God. I like sports, but I've got to be careful. I don't get too caught up in watching sports or participating in sports. Because if, if that's all you're doing, say you like fishing, and you're fishing you know, 40 hours a week and working 60 hours a week, it doesn't leave much time for your family or for church or for serving God, right? And whatever it is that one of your pleasures, these should be recreation. They shouldn't be your whole life. <laughs> in other words... When you do these pleasures, they ought to give you vitality, not take away your vitality. The point is, the third soil is someone who comes to faith, who continues to believe, who produces fruit, but the fruit never really fully develops. It's like I, I grew up in Arcadia, and we, we one time, my dad and I, we grew a peach tree, one of these little peach trees. And we never got better than little golf ball-sized peaches. They were green and, and small, and you couldn't eat them. They were peaches, but I'm not going to eat them. And there are Christians that are like that. They're half-hearted in their service for Christ. They serve Christ. They serve Him their whole life. But cares, riches, and the pleasures of life sap their spiritual strength so that they don't really develop all that they could be for Christ. The fourth soil is a person who the Word of God is richly coming in. It's not choked out by the cares, riches, or pleasures of life. They don't stop believing the Word of God. They keep applying it and growing. And it says, actually in Greek, the, word, the first word good, but the ones that fell on the good ground, it's the same word translated noble later on. And I believe the translators do that because there's two synonyms for good, talking about the noble and good heart. So we might even translate that the ones that fell on the noble ground. Because in Greek, that word noble is the same word translated noble and good heart. 
The ones that fell on the noble ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart. There's the key. How's your heart? Are you putting your heart into it when you hear the word of God preached? Are you putting your heart into it when you read the word of God? Are you putting your heart into it by being involved in a discipleship group, by being involved in a Sunday school class, by being involved in in various classes you can take to grow in your faith? Well, it's all about your heart. How you grow as a Christian, whether you're going to be the kind that quits the race or whether you're going to be the kind that's kind of half-hearted and messed up with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, or whether you're going to be the noble soil with the noble and good heart, it all depends on how we respond to the Word of God. Imagine the God of the universe has told us what He wants us to know, and then we turn our back on it. Would that make any sense? I mean, obviously, if he created us, he knows the way to the abundant life. And in fact, he has so set it up to where as we feed on the word of God, that's what itself gives us the abundant life. Well, I'd like, I've just finished teaching a a mini-semester course on the art of and the science and the spiritual component of biblical hermeneutics. And the word hermeneutics is not some guy named hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics means the art of interpreting the Bible. It's also called exegesis, drawing the meaning out of the Bible. And what I would like to do at the end of this message is for us to briefly consider interpreting the Word of God. Because you cannot apply the Word of God like we need to, to be the noble and good-hearted soil, to be the noble soil, Without You can't apply it properly without understanding it properly. And let me just mention three things, because there's three basic components to putting your heart into it in terms of the Word of God. Number one, you need to understand the science of interpretation. The science of interpretation is there are certain principles we can all use to learn from the Word of God. One of them is we observe as we hear it, as we read it, as we study it, we're observing We're paying attention. You know, if we let our mind drift as we're reading the Word, as we're hearing it taught, then we're not getting as much out of it as if we're locking in on it like this is something important. You know, like we're watching the NFC playoff game or the AFC championship game, and we're saying, man, I want to see that play. Let me rewind that. You know, let me me see that again. Let's see a replay. Do we do that with the Bible? Do we meditate on it? Do we read it and we say, man, that was interesting. What was that? And we keep chewing on that. And sometimes maybe it's months or even years where we're thinking about something in the Word of God. Well, we'll be that way if this is important to us. If this is where our heart is, if this is where our desire is, then the Word of God is going to be something that that we don't just read it and leave it behind. But it stays with us and we keep thinking about it and meditating on it. And that's part of the science of it. Reading it with attention. Looking for repeated words, repeated phrases. Looking up in a concordance to see how a given word is used by the same author. Or maybe in the rest of other books by the author or the whole New Testament or the whole Bible or the whole Old Testament or whatever. Commentaries can be helpful, but let me suggest you've got to be careful with commentaries because commentaries in many cases are written by people who are, do not have a high regard for the inerrancy of the Bible. And in some cases, even people who are not born again write commentaries. They just happen to be people who have doctorates from prestigious places and they write commentaries. And these commentaries can be helpful because they can make some observations that are good. They can ask some of the right questions. 
But the point is, you are responsible for taking in the Word of God. You can't say, well, someone else tells me what it means. You need to prayerfully study the Word of God and see. Is that what it says? Is that what it means? That's part of the science of interpretation. And you've got to put your heart in it. Now, here at this church, you've got lots of opportunities. You heard Pastor Arch talking about how there's a new group starting next Sunday night. He's got several discipleship groups, and some of you are in that. I've met some of you in some of his discipleship groups. Others on the staff have discipleship groups. The leaders of the church have discipleship groups. Many of you are teaching Sunday school groups and discipleship groups. There's lots of opportunity to learn the science of biblical interpretation in this church. And you can take advantage of it. But interpretation is more than a science. It's also an art. Now, it's an art in this sense. The more you do it well, the better you get at it. A brand new Christian needs somebody to kind of help them along to grow in the basics of the faith called the milk of the word. And as they do, they get better and better at interpreting the word of God because they've got some practice. We say practice makes perfect. It's probably practice makes better or perfect. The more you practice, the better you get. And that's true with the art of hermeneutics. I can't quite explain how it works, but the longer you've walked with Jesus and you've paid attention to his word and you've really observed his word and asked questions about his word and you've come to understand it and apply it, the more you grow in your ability to understand more. And so there's an art to it. You know, there was the story told of a painter. He painted this picture and it was not a real big picture, but it was very beautiful. And some skeptic came to look at the painting. And the painting was selling for $500. And the skeptic says, Come on, be honest with me. How long did it take you to paint this $500 painting? (laughs) Really, how long did this thing take? I bet it didn't take you very long. And the painter said, well, it took me two hours and 25 years. (laughs) Well, it may have taken him two hours to paint it, but it took him 25 years of hard work to get to the point where he could paint it in two hours. That might be worth $500. I mean, there are people you have to pay $500 an hour if you want an attorney that's high-powered or you want people that are doing something. That I've been told that Bill Gates makes so much money that if he saw a $100 bill on the ground, it doesn't pay for him to stoop down to pick it up because he makes more than $100 every four or five seconds. You know, So just let it go. Forget it. Well... Same is true with the art. Well, not quite. I mean, nobody's paying you this kind of money to interpret the Bible. But the point is the same is true with the art of interpretation. And that is, the more we do it, if we're doing it, putting our heart into it, the better we get. The third thing, and this is something that Pastor Arch spoke about last week, I understand, from talking with him, is the idea of the... Uh, not the art of it, but the spiritual component of interpreting the Bible. There's a spiritual aspect to it that touches on our hearts. And we get it, for example, in Luke 8.15. The one who receives the word with a noble and good heart. It's not just a matter of having the right techniques, the science. It's not just a matter of doing it a lot. You have to have the right heart. There's a spiritual component to it. In fact, did you notice... In verse 18, where after he's given the parable, he then says, Therefore take heed how you hear, how you hear the word of God. For whoever has, to him more will be given. 
if you are applying the Word of God and you're taking it in, God's going to reward you by giving you more truth. If not, He'll withhold it. And we find this in many passages of Scripture where it talks about this. For example, in Hebrews 11.6, it says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So there's a spiritual component to it because the Bible is a spiritual book. And God can open it or close it to our understanding depending on whether He feels we should get more understanding. And so we need to be people who are diligently seeking Him. In James 4, 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace or favor to the humble. If we come humbly to the Word of God and say, Lord, I can't get this without Your help, unless Your Spirit opens it up, I don't, I'm not going to get it. God's going to reward that type of person. But if I come arrogantly before God and say, I thank you, God, I'm not like all these other nincompoops that can't understand the Word of God, but I have the right technique, and I get it, and they're all doofuses, you know, uh, God's not going to reward that kind of attitude. If I have an arrogant attitude, God doesn't pour His grace, His favor upon me as I study His Word. In Psalm 119 and verse 18, the psalmist prays asking God that he would open... And of course, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And in verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Do we pray that? Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law, from your word. Or do we think... It really doesn't have anything to do with God. It's just a matter of the science and the art. Well, there's a spirit to it. And we need to come before God and ask Him to direct us. In John chapter 2, and I believe uh, Arch preached on this a few years ago, but look at John 2, 23 to 25. And we won't have time to go into this in depth, but what we find is when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover after the wedding at Cana, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. We're told in John 1.12 that anyone who believes in his name has everlasting life. And so then he says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And the very next verse talks about a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, came to faith there in John 3, member of the Sanhedrin, but was not confessing Jesus. And that's a clue to what the problem was with these new believers. They were unwilling to confess their faith in Jesus because it was not a popular thing for a person that was a Jew in that day to believe in Jesus because if you confessed him, you'd be put out of the synagogue. They wouldn't let you worship with your fellow Jews. And so as a result, these new Jewish believers were unwilling to confess Jesus, so guess what? Jesus did not entrust more truth to them. He didn't allow them to understand more of his revelation because their heart wasn't in it. They didn't have the right spirit. In John 14, 21, and I believe last week Arch preached on John 16, uh, 12 through 15, about the spirits guiding them into all truth. He guided the apostles into all truth. Well, the same principle applies in that he will guide us into truth as we have a heart that is humble before God. In John 14, uh, verse 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, 
It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If we want Jesus to manifest himself to us through the word of God, then we need to have that spiritual component. So there's three aspects of understanding and applying the word of God. Understanding it first and then later applying it. One is there's a science to it. And you learn that as you hear the Word of God preached and as you're involved in discipleship groups and as you study the Word of God. Secondly, there's an art to it. The more you do it, the better you can get at it. But third, there's a spiritual component to it. And that is we need to diligently seek God with a humble heart or with what we're told in Luke 8 is a noble and good heart. Look at verses in Luke 8 at the final three verses and we'll conclude there. Very powerful. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under the bed, but sets it on the lampstand that those who enter may see the light. Say what? Why mention anything about a light and lamp? Well, because guess what, Christian? Whether you're soil 2, 3, and 4 is going to matter forever. Because God's going to shine a light on every one of our lives after this life is over at a place and a time called the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to light this light to reveal what we've done. And verse 17 is kind of a scary verse. It's a sobering verse because it says, Nothing is secret that will not be revealed. Do we believe that? No, most Christians don't believe that. Most Christians think most of this is going to go away. If we just confess it, then all that's gone. And and only thing that's going to come up at the judgment seat of Christ is all the good stuff we do, and the rest is going to be white noise. Well, verse 17 says, Nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. That's sobering. That's sobering because there's a comprehensive judgment as a Christian. Of course, nothing we've done that's wrong is going to be brought up as sin. That's all dealt with. But as deeds, our life will be a comprehensive judgment. And verse 18 then says, Therefore, take heed how you hear. Back to the Bible. For whoever has to him, more will be given. Ultimately, that looks ahead to the life to come. At the judgment seat of Christ, when our lives are evaluated, the people who are the good soil, who have the abundant life now, are going to get more abundant life then. The people, on the other hand, who are half-hearted in their service for Christ, they're going to get half the kind of reward. And the people who fall away are going to be in the kingdom, but they're going to miss out on ruling with Christ altogether. And I don't have time to go into it, but if you take time, look at Luke 19 11 to 27 in the parable of the Minas, you find the same principle of to whoever has, more will be given. And you also find there are three servants. You find one that goes from one to ten, and he hears, well done, good servant, rule over ten cities. You have one that goes from one to five. I think the one to ten is the noble and good heart, the good soil. The one that goes from one to five is like the guy that's caught up in the weeds. And he doesn't hear, well done, good servant. He hears you also be over five cities. He gets authority, he gets rulership, but he doesn't hear the well done, good servant. And he doesn't get ten, he gets five. The third guy, which I think illustrates the, the person here, who's the second soil with the rock, that person hears you wicked servant. Why did you waste what I gave you? Why did you squander it? Yet he does get into the kingdom because he's set in contrast to the unbelieving nation of Israel in Luke 19:27. Well, you might look at that. The point is this. The Word of God is not only how we get eternal life by believing in Jesus. It's also the way we have abundance of life here and now. The Christian life is not about 
I believe in Jesus and then I leave the Bible behind and just have a heart for the Lord. You don't have a heart for the Lord unless you have a heart for his book. Because God's word is what transforms us as our minds are renewed. And so my call to all of us is learn the science of interpretation. Practice the art of interpretation by doing it, doing it, doing it. And have a regular practice of asking God, open your word to me. Let me understand it because prayer is a part of understanding his word. And the neat thing is, the more the word of God takes hold in our hearts, the more we put our heart into it, the better we become as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as an employee, as an employer, as a person at church. Our whole life becomes more abundant and there's a blessing effect to the people around us. And the more we get away from the Word of God, just the opposite is true. So the Word of God is a beautiful thing. And as we see the beauty of Jesus in it, there's a transforming effect. So my challenge to all of us is, put your heart into it. You'll be glad you did. Let's close in prayer.